Productions, we will try to give you an impression of a new kind of film experience. If your curiosity is aroused, you are ready for Phase 4. They're sending back my message. What does it mean? This is no message. If there's an intelligence there, I wanted to know there's an intelligence here. I believe that they'll move rather quickly into desert areas, taking over the countryside first, then laying siege to towns and cities. We have only one chance. My name is Rod, and with me for the first time in almost, well, I guess about a year, if not longer, is Randy Fox, the writer, the raconteur, the DJ, the, the man about town. How are you, Mr. Fox? Oh, I'm doing great, Rod. It's, it's been way too long since we did the last one of these, which I guess was the final program. Yeah. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. It was uh, the, the much revered final program episode that we did. I still getting good messages about that one. So, Oh, cool. Cool. Huh, so uh, we have uh, continued to travel very apparently slowly down this road of 1970s science fiction <laughs> films. Hopefully we can pick up the pace in the near future. You know, so. hold your tongue. Cause we've said that before and we're still down. Yeah. To, we're down to like True. one a year. I don't know that we have any place to speak. So, uh, what we have here is, uh, a, 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 fa- a favorite of a number of people, but it certainly isn't a film that was considered a success on first release. We're talking about a film called Phase 4 from 1974. We have uh, many things to say about it. Randy, when did you first see this film? Well, I, I first encountered it the first time it, it was shown on network television, mm-hmm. which uh, was it was on it was an ABC movie of the week, and it was shown on June 22nd, 1978, which should tell you something about how successful the studio and the network considered this movie at the time, yeah. in that it took four years to get to television, and when it did show up on television, they basically kind of dumped it in the summertime, and... Um, 
uh, you know, which was they they were not showing the the pro- big primetime releases, which makes me kind of suspect that probably what happened was when ABC work, worked out the package of movies to license from Paramount, Paramount was like, OK, here, these are the ones you want. And here's the junk you've got to take. And they and phase four <laughs> was like, you know, one of the the uh, sloppy seconds that they well, we'll take it, but we'll bury it in the summertime some somewhere, you know, we'll take it, but um, you can't make us like it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and at the at the time I saw it on TV, you know, I I I had never heard of it um, because uh, four years earlier, in 1974, I would have been uh, 11 years old. So I wasn't and probably if I had seen it when I was 11, it would have freaked me out, quite frankly. Yeah, uh, yeah. But seeing it in 1978 when I was when I was um, uh, let's see, how old was I then? Uh, 15. Um, I was fully by that point i was fully fully into science fiction i was subscribing to analog and i was and i was reading isaac asimov's science fiction magazine yeah, yeah. and i was in the science fiction book club i had been in the science fiction book club for a couple of years at that point and i was very much into you know brainy cerebral new wave science fiction and the, and the, and what followed that in the 1970s and so at that point i just i love this movie I just absolutely love this movie whenever I saw it on television. So from the get-go, from your first viewing, you really got into it. Yeah, it, it was creepy, and it was, and it had big ideas, and and really, in in a sense, you know, I watching it again this a couple of days ago, I, I kind of said, you know, this is kind of like a, a good way to describe this movie might be uh, two thousand one, an inner space odyssey, <laughs> because <laughs> I mean, obviously, it's very much influenced by two thousand one, but it's going for that same thing of of a big idea with a very nebulous kind of un unresolved ending, except that you know, big changes are coming, and uh, yeah, so kind of like Homo sapiens will survive, but they're not going to be humanity as we know it anymore, which is which is really kind of the ending of 2001. Yeah, is that, yeah. is that well, our species is going to continue, but it's going to be really different from now on. You know, so. Well, I um, did not get to see this film. I never caught this on television at all. I, I did not see this movie until about 20 years ago when it came out on DVD. And right. uh, and I rented I rented the DVD, watched it, absorbed it. I had I had I had known enough about the film because I'd read about I'd read about it in different film magazines and you know different commentaries about it over over the course of time in books and things of that nature making mention of it and describing it in in certain ways and so my initial viewing of it was a very mixed viewing because I I didn't really know what to, to what it was going to do to me or what kind of effect it was going to have in the short term but what I found was that it was one of those movies that really kind of stuck to my brain and I was thinking about it still weeks later so I ended up watching it again yeah and realizing that it's it's fascinating it's very interesting I uh, there are things in it there, there there are elements of it that I don't think are as effective as I wish they were but overall I was really really taken with it and I'm still to this day in that same place after the second after my second viewing you know now I'm up to probably my fifth or sixth viewing of it coming coming into to talking about it for the show and i have to say that my opinion of it has kind of stayed the same now because it is such a uh, it is such a, a an interesting film it doesn't wear out its welcome it keeps interesting things in front of you almost all the time there's very few moments 
when you've, at least for me, where I can feel my attention wandering. And the, I'm, 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 and for instance, one of my, one of my uh, initial criticisms of the film is that all the human characters really are just, they, they, I, there, there was a part of me that wondered at a certain point why they bothered giving them names because they really just <laughs> seem to be archetypes. You know, they're not, they're not yeah. really, yeah. Um, they're, they're, they're representative of certain things that the story needs to move itself forward. And so, uh, they, I mean, it, it's almost as if giving them names kind of takes away from that element of it, but still it, it, it is very interesting. You talked about how influenced the, by the, by 2001, the ending is, but I mean, I see everything in this from the Andromeda strain to uh, obviously the the Hellstrom Chronicles from a few years before this, with all, you know, with all the 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 ant footage, and of course the the man who shot the ant footage for the Hellstrom Chronicles shot the footage right. for and this film as well. But I mean, and it, it's also uh, it's also very much what I call an Outer Limits movie. Yeah, that's basically any movie that could basically be an episode of the Outer Limits, and that's what this is. Yeah, this could have been a two part. This could have been a two part Outer Limits episode. Yeah, very easily. And so yeah. what we have here is uh, a film that seems to be constructed out of the parts of ideas taken from other places, like um, the the Naked Jungle, the Charlton Heston film. That uh, you know deals with uh, uh, a farmer in Africa dealing with uh, an infestation of uh, army ants at a at a at a plant at a plantation on, in in the middle of nowhere. The uh, 2001 influence is heavy, so it's almost as if there's this amalgam of elements, and the 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 idea was to construct what we see here, which is by turns an examination of what it might be like. It's a form of science fiction story that is rarely told. And even when it is told, it's rarely told in this fashion where the idea is that the threat that the story is centering is almost completely invisible to humankind until it is far too late for anything to have any effect on it. And also, it's 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 kind of the story of it's like humanity doesn't really have much choice in in what happens to this. No, they don't. It, it, it's it, again it, to draw that parallel to two thousand one. It's like it's like it's the force of evolution that's involved here. Mm-hmm. And um, well, I may be getting a little bit ahead of myself, but but yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's like there's there's kind of this realization. This isn't a defeat the menace. This is like. This is the way it is. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's more yeah. It's more of a yeah. recognize what the menace is and then realize, oh, wow, maybe this is what maybe this is what the aboriginal man five million years ago could have possibly realized was happening to them. But it didn't matter wow. because it was already in motion by the time they were aware of anything changing. Yeah, it's a case of where where humanity doesn't really have control over what's going to happen here you know it's it's out of our hands it's beyond us and the two scientist characters are well first of all they're perfect <laughs> they're perfect archetypes of the types of scientific scientist characters that you can stre- see stretching all the way back to uh the the original thing in 1951 where you've got one who's very rational very carefully going through the process of figuring out what he can using the tools that he has that's the michael murphy character uh to right. to, 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 to dope out what 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 is going on? 
learning what we can do with the aim of attempting to communicate with these ants to hopefully be able to find out why they have changed their their modus operandi, the way they live so radically. Why, as we learned at the beginning of the films, all these different kinds of ants are now working in t- you know, t- working together. They're synchronizing their activities to accomplish things that we've never seen ants do before. And so he is the rational scientist, uh, whereas the other scientist, played by Nigel Davenport, um, although later in the film he has, he has a reason to kind of go in this direction, he was already the kind of uh, charge-forward, break-things-and-see-what-happens kind of guy, as evidenced by the fact that he takes grenades to the, to the ant hills to get things moving because nothing is happening and they're going to run out of grant money and nobody's going to, nobody's going to allow them to stay out there and find out what the hell is going on. Right. Right. So you've got the, the emotional versus the intellectual playing out here. And in the end, it doesn't matter. (laughs) It has absolutely no effect on the outcome other than it's only the intellectual approach that allows for a glimmer of what is actually happening by the end of the story. Well, well, I, I, one thing I find interesting about the two characters is that it, it, it's not a case. I, I don't look at it necessarily as a case of, of pure intellect versus, um, like emotional, emo, oh, human no. emotion. No, not not because pure, there, there's no. actually a mix there. It's like yeah. it's like um, the Michael Murphy character is is kind of meticulous in the way he wants to approach the study, but he's compassionate to fellow human beings. Yeah. Whereas Nigel Davenport's character is kind of like. Emotional in the fact that, come on, I'm tired of waiting around. We want to get this yeah. rolling. I'm go- and I don't care. But at the same time, he's also like, but I don't care what I do to other people or what uh, anything else. You know. So it's kind of like there. There's. It's almost kind of a yin yang thing where mm-hmm. where one is emotional. Where Michael Murphy's character is kind of emotional in the positive sense. Nigel Davenport's character is emotional in a negative sense. And yet they both have all um, that rationality and and scientific. You know intellectualism mixed in there so it, it, to me it's kind of, that kind of makes the characters a little more fascinating because it's not just a pure thing of emotion versus intellect you know right it's kind of like the they're the reverse of each other in that sense true and i but and i think that it's interesting that the, the movie completely sidesteps the idea and, and they go out of their way to tr- tr- to try to make it difficult for this to happen uh they completely sidestep the idea of there being a a possible romance with the with the young girl and they go out of the oh, way yeah. in two different ways one they make her a a teenager therefore kind of setting up a barrier there even though the actress playing the character was 21 at the time they uh they had her wear this bizarre they had to, they had her wear this bizarre corset to like push down her breasts to make her look even younger because they they really wanted to emphasize that this was this this was uh not an adult and then, right, and, right. and then, when the film goes in the direction that it does, uh, we're, we're not looking at a situation where there's some kind of coupling that is being pushed forward by these by these ants. That and there's not something that has occurred in that direction. It's just the idea that there is a male and a female, not a male. Well, it's yeah. not a. It, it kind of yeah. It it, it kind of removes. It removes human sexuality from the equate. What they right. do is they kind of remove human sexuality. If there's a coupling going on here, it's going to be because of survival of the species in its new form. It's not going to be because of any kind of romantic or, or, or human sense of sexuality. It's going to be 
evolution at work, basically. Is the kind of the sense I pick up on it. Well, know? let's let's back up a little bit yeah. here and talk about uh, the people who made this film, just so we can get a sense of um, the the minds behind the creation of this. Uh, first out of the gate, I want to say that uh, the movie was not financially successful. As a matter of fact, uh, this is the first and only film that Saul Bass ever got to direct. The, not that he didn't uh, contribute things to other films the same way he had for years at that point for people like Hitchcock and Otto Preminger and a bunch of other different people, but there is a there is a certain and also and also create some of the coolest movie posters of the 20th century. Oh, to, very yeah, very much so. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, you title sequences. Yeah, yeah, the title sequences are amazing. <laughs> but now you've reminded me of something that I cannot stop myself from talking about, which is the phrase on the movie poster for Phase Four. They were you can tell that they really had no idea how in the hell to sell this thing, because the, oh, yeah. the tagline yeah. at the top of the movie poster was "The day the Earth was turned into a cemetery." <laughs> and it's like you're really I mean and don't get me wrong the images used on the poster of a of a human hand with an ant bloodily digging its way out of the palm with you know ants in the background that if you were to pay attention to the perspective in the poster almost seems like they're giant ants chasing two human figures across a a devastated wasteland with that geodesic dome in the background it's like right. man that is not the movie you're getting when you walk in and sit down <laughs> yeah, in the theater. Yeah. Well, and that, that that's kind of my reaction when I saw it. All I knew was going into it when I saw it on te- television in 1978. Oh, it's a it's a giant ant movie, you know, or something, you know. <laughs> and uh, and it turned out to be something quite different. <laughs> oh, yes. Very, yeah. very, very different. But uh, we should state that, you know, the director of the film was Saul Bass, who was uh, at that time primarily known for, as we were talking about, designing movie posters and title sequences. As a matter of fact, he was one of the first people to really kind of push forward the idea of title sequences of movies being something that can enhance the film in a certain way. And he kind of perfected the art of using the title sequence to, whether you're aware of it or not when you're watching it, almost gives you a kind of a little breakdown of the entire film that you're about to watch um, yeah. through through images, through just visuals and the use of whatever, whatever the music that is playing over the title sequence. He was brilliant at that. And so the, the joys of uh, having Saul Bass with this kind of visual sense uh, direct a film of this type, it, it's, it's a great idea. And I think that what he accomplished is wonderful, but it is not hard to see why this film made, you know, about a nickel and a half. And yeah, yeah. well, I I have some theories about that, but we'll get into that a little bit later. Okay. Um, I I think it's kind of interesting. And, you know, it's interesting, too, that we were saying that the last one we did was the the final program. And I, I. in a way, I kind of find a connection between these two movies in that they're, they're both the endings are kind of like, well, humanity as we know it is is history and what goes forward from here is going to be something very different and the fact that the directors were both people who had done production design so they were very much oriented to what does the image on the screen look like you know so anyway just a a little trivial note that i well i think that's i think that you've hit on something there because i think that it factors into how in starting in the late 60s through the the mid 70s you had this um, willingness on the parts of the people who were fronting the cash to allow a fair amount of experimentation in 
what was going up on the screen, which of course meant that they were willing to allow for a bit more of an experimental approach by the people who were putting those images up on the screen. And so that's how you get some of the very odd and interesting and uh, not necessarily very well appreciated films from that period of time. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was kind of like after when, 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 um, the way I look at it, it's kind of like what was happening in music at the same time is that the guys in the, you know, they, there'd been these hits that the guys with the cigars and the, and the pinstripe suits could not figure out. Right. And it was kind of like, I don't know what the hell, I don't know why the hell people pay money to go see it, but hell, you know, Next weirdo that comes in the door with a weird idea, let's throw money at him. Maybe we'll have another one, you know. <laughs> and that was kind of there. So there was kind of that sense of of just like you know throw money at people. And and the record business does that. The movie business does that. Hell, that's yeah. what happened. That's basically what happened after Star Wars. That's that's how we eventually end up with movies like American Werewolf and The Thing and and Blade Runner and so forth. Is is that it was like after Star Wars, it was like well, give these freaks that know this science fiction stuff money and let them run loose for a while maybe we'll hit with something you know <laughs> maybe you know. we'll accidentally spend 10 million dollars on something that makes us a billion you never can yeah, tell exactly and so <laughs> that, that's very much a well i don't know necessarily if that's the case now but it they're very much used to be a, a, a hallmark of hollywood would be like i can't figure this crap out anymore let's just give them a next pippy that comes in here give him some money <laughs> well no from what i understand from what i understand for the past 30 years is that every moron slinging around a checkbook has is convinced that he has really genius ideas about how to yeah, make movies yeah, well, which that's, is that's, which is what gum, yeah, but, which is what's gummed up the works in a lot of productions so i i there was a there's a quote from frank zappa and of course i don't remember the exact quote but he was talking about this very phenomenon in the in the record business and he was something like we were a lot better with the cigar chewing guys in suits that didn't know what the fuck was going on you know yeah <laughs> as opposed to all these slick guys that think they know everything so yeah they they think they've seen a lot of movies and therefore they know how to make one and it's like no you don't right Right. No, no. I, I and that, that's something I, I've 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 spoken about in different conversations with people over the years. It's like I've spent I don't know how many thousands of hours talking with friends and being on podcasts talking about movies. But I can tell you right now, I can't make you a movie. <laughs> I have <laughs> I can't do it. I can I can outline some of the ideas about how things get done, and I I'm a great admirer of the art form, but. Making a movie? Oh shit, man! I need to hold. I need like three people to hold my hands. <laughs> Just to, yeah, yeah. I I understand. I'm I'm that way about a lot of things. I mean, you know, I I I am not an artist in any way, shape, or form. But I I know what good art involves. But I couldn't create it. <laughs> right, right. Whereas Saul Bass was. And yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. To bring it back to the point. Yeah. Yeah, and so exactly. Here's the weird thing is, uh, and I'm, I'm going to make sure that I don't do this because <clears throat> I found myself over the past couple of days making this mistake. The The name of the writer of the script is Mayo Simon, not Simon mm-hmm. Mayo, like I keep trying to say it. Uh, <laughs> it does seem it, to be reversed. <laughs> I know. It's it's really odd, but I, 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 I'm a little stunned by this guy because he made, uh, he, he made several, or he wrote, I should say, several different screenplays for some science fiction films starting in uh, 1969 with Marooned. There was this. He eventually wrote Future World, which I guess we will eventually have to cover, but I don't know that either of us are really standing there at the door 
begging to to talk about future. Oh no, I, I'm 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 ready to go. I basically I'm ready to go on with any science fiction movie. Oh, okay. I, I, I know I know I may have to kidnap you and hold you at gunpoint to do Silent Running someday, but I want oh, to. Oh God, I, <laughs> Silent Running. It's like oh man. There's about thirty percent of that movie that I I I. I I can't rewatch. It drives me crazy. And, and, and unfortunately that 30, that 30% of the movie is scattered throughout the entire running time. And it's awful, yeah. but we'll, yeah. we'll discuss that in, on another day. But my yeah, we'll, Mayo, we'll, Mayo we'll, Simon, we'll meet, we'll meet at an undisclosed location and have a wrestling match. over. <laughs> something. Well, uh, Mayo Simon uh, also was, and this was, this freaked me out. Uh, he was responsible for a lot of the man from Atlantis, which featured heavily in my youth, which is really oh, yeah. strange. I just I just recently rewatched the first movie of that, and and it was like, okay, now I understand why I was so crazy about this because it's really good. <laughs> See, I've been meaning to go back and rewatch the some of the Man from Atlanta stuff for years, and I still haven't gone and done it. Um, yeah. So you're saying it kind of stands up? Oh yeah, the the first one is is a cracking good. I, you know, okay. it's, it's it's what it is. But well, it's a TV but pilot. It, I mean, yeah, yeah. For for a TV pilot, made for TV movie pilot, it's like, hey, this is pretty dang good. Now I haven't watched any of the follow up movies or the series, but but I did watch the uh, orig- the first one not long ago and was like, wow, I'm pleasantly surprised at just how good this really is. So well, that's yeah. good to know. That's good to know. So, so anyway, uh, well, at any rate, yeah. So we have. Uh, a, a script that um, I think may have been, I wonder what it looked like on the page to Bass, because I'm assuming that he had a hand in crafting the direction it goes, or we wouldn't have this, um, this we, we wouldn't have the ending that we have, regardless of which ending you choose. It's really kind of the same kind of ending. But the, uh, yeah, yeah. what we have here, and so that, um, that lead, leads us to the, cast we could talk about some of the people behind the scenes like uh the 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 man who did the ant photography uh kid middleham or middleham or every time i hear a brit pronounce that man's name it's got a different sound at the end but i don't know but he's the man who's responsible for the ant photography um and it's really it really kind of fascinating all of that close-up photography of the ants is exceptional and i know it had to be very difficult to get the shots that they needed for the film to kind right. of play I, things I out the way it because, has to because there's a real narrative told yes by that photography and, and 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 you know in some ways you were talking about how how the characters were almost like you're almost surprised they gave them names because they're such archetypes but in some ways the ants have even more personality than the human characters yeah and it's, I, you know, I was watching when I was watching it, I kept thinking, like, how in the hell did they pull this off? I mean, you know, it's one thing to just set cameras, you know, figure out from a technical viewpoint, OK, how are we going to get like this and get these shots of ants when they're that small? But it's like it's like these ants are act or at least they feel like they're acting. And, and it was like, I, how did they do that? <laughs> how did they pull that off? You there's, know? A, there's a part of me picturing Saul Bass with it, with, with, with the, with the big megaphone standing over the anthill going, I need you to go left, look pensively yeah. toward the camera and or, then move to your right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like that. That's not how that was done. Yeah. Yeah. I, it, cause it, cause it, like I said, some of the, the ants do really kind of come off as characters. And I, I, I got it. It boggles my mind. I mean, it must have been a matter of like, well, we know that ants have this, and they go, well, if we shoot that in the right, if we if we set that up and shoot it in the right way, then we can make it look like 
you know, that this is the, it fits the storyline, you right, know, or something, right. but good, good Lord. <laughs> so this movie should be praised just for pulling that off alone, in my, my opinion. Um, but of course there's a lot more. For, for, for somehow anthropomorphizing ants, for God's sake. But yeah. 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 Well, um, yeah. let's talk a little bit about the cast. It won't be difficult. We're not going to have a lot of actors to talk about here. Uh, Nigel Hawthorne is, uh, I would I would, I would, put him in the lead position. He's the older... Uh, Davenport. Uh, oh, uh, oh, I'm, Nigel Davenport. oh, my God, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> Nigel Davenport. Oh, my God, I'm sorry. Well, I have That's notes in front of me, so... <laughs> well, I've got notes in front of me, but it didn't keep me from reading them. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> at, at any rate, he's a he's an actor who I've only seen in roughly a million things. Oh, man, The Sands of the Kalahari, um, Man for All Seasons, of course... And I, I got to tell you this, and this is embarrassing. I, I was, I was amused because I did remember seeing him in a couple of episodes of the Avengers. But what I did not remember was that he was in more science fiction films than I realized. Really, really unexpectedly, uh, I remembered No Blade of Grass, right? Right. Uh, which is another film that this one kind of draws from a, to a degree, right? But besides right. Phase Four. He was in. Uh, he played Montgomery in the seventy-seven version of the Island of Doctor Moreau. He was in. Uh, oh, my brain just farted. Hang on. Well, he, he's Van Helsing in Bram Stoker's Dracula from uh, what was that seventy-nine or I believe. Yeah. My goodness, was he? No, he wasn't. By the way. Oh, not not. Or maybe I'm thinking of a different version of Dracula. <coughs> I don't even see him in a version. Oh no, he was in the. Uh, 1974. No, he's in the Dan Curtis. It's the Dan Curtis one. Sorry. I yeah, playing Von Helsing yeah. in that. Yeah, yeah. Besides things like, you know, Mary Queen of Scots and, and The Last Valley, which, by the way, if you've never seen those films, folks, allow me to point you in that direction. Uh, both well worth your time. But, you know, he, he'd be doing uh, uh, Much Ado About Nothing and then following it up with... Uh, and, and, and Chariots of Fire and Masada and all these huge things. And then sprinkled and, in and there, just like any other working actor, you know, right. there, there'd be uh, all these little things where he's playing like Silas Scrooge in the TV version of A Christmas Carol in 84 with George C. Scott. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, if you and if you think about it, who would have been the perfect Scrooge for a production of A Christmas Carol? But... Not, but 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 old Nigel himself. I mean, why why why, did, why wasn't he playing that character? I guess because he wasn't a bigger name. But the realization that yeah, I was right. I've seen this guy in a blue billion things didn't stop me from really kind of being impressed with just how good he is as an actor. He's one of those actors, and this is I hate to say this. This is a bit of the Anglophile coming out in me. This thing that I can't avoid, which is there's just something about a British actor who seems more natural on screen to me. But yeah. in this case, in this film, he is matched by an actor who I think is really good as well, but an actor who I often forget about because he seems to kind of just disappear into a lot of these films when he's in right. them. Um, I don't I, I don't think of Michael Murphy as being some kind of great actor. And yet every time I see him in a movie or any, it, it, I remember him in Tanner 88, that TV miniseries done for HBO with Robert right. Altman, written by Gary Trudeau. And he was just amazing in that as the title character. And right. But I remember yeah. watching it and understanding how somebody could be watching that and thinking that this is a documentary. 
he's so natural in how he presents himself, and he's so, he's so good in this because he's he's one of those he's one of those actors who does seem to be able to bring a um, a, a bit of humor even to something that can be as dour as this, uh, because this is a this is a bit of a down <laughs> downer of a storyline, and there's not a lot of uh, grin and joke in this, and yet he still manages to find several moments in the story where he can you know smile and present the information that he's presenting as a scientist in a way that feels like somebody who's really enjoying, you know, as if the character really is enjoying having found this and then getting to explain it to somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. And, and I mean, you consider his character is a, is a uh, cryptologist, Uh which is mainly, you know, he deals with puzzles. He names with, with figuring out languages and, and so forth. Um, so he he's he, it's definitely it's the personality of somebody who who delights in solving the problem, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. So, and, and he he comes across that way in the film, you know. And, and but yeah, you're you're right. He's one of those actors that kind of sinks into whatever role he's playing, and you don't really think of him as being oh, there's one of my favorite actors. It's because he's so good, you don't really think of him as being an actor. He's just that character yeah. in the story. It's like, and, I, rem- uh, I remember him. Uh, and, and those are, those kind of actors, you know, they're not flashy. They don't stand right. out, you know, and you don't put them on like, well, who's your favorite actor, you know? And, but, um, but they're, but when you see enough of their performances over time, you, you start to realize, wow, this guy is really impressive, you know, yeah. because they're able to do what they're able to do. He worked in yeah. a lot of things with uh, Robert Altman, but at the same time, while he's, while he's in things like McCabe and Miss Miller and MASH, in between, he's also in Count Yorga Vampire, for God's yeah. sake. And he's, he's well, in What's Up, Doc? I mean, he's in uh, just all these different kinds of things where you realize this guy's just, he really he really just sinks into these roles in a way where you don't think of him as an actor. He really just seems so natural on screen, and that works very effectively here. Well, well, you know, and, and of course, the, the fact that he were, he was a regular that Altman would hire tells you that to the level of of that he was able to work method and yeah. able to improvise because i mean altman was very much about actors improvising lines at time because it was it was like they're not following the script they're getting into the character and being that character so mm-hmm. it makes sense that somebody anyone that would be a regular of of, of altman's crew would have that ability so because because that that's what altman wanted in actors was that right there yeah the idea that he, he wanted actors who had a brain inside their head because they needed to be able to think on their feet because altman, right. altman like a lot of great directors see what they're doing as a collaborative effort and if the other person doesn't really have anything to bring to the table then eh, he's probably not going to keep them around long whereas michael murphy he worked with for 25 years so right he knew it was it was somebody he knew he could go to and get uh, you know, I, I I don't necessarily have to tell you the performance I want. I trust you. I can I'm I am confident that you will give me the performance I want and I'll know it when I see it. You know, yeah, yeah. that type of thing. Yeah. So uh, I, I'll, I'll admit that I, I did not I did not know much about uh, the rest of the cast until I started digging into them. Uh, Lynn Fredericks, uh, uh, the the actress who um, or Lynn Frederick, who plays really the, uh, the 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 third of the trio who ends up trapped in the geodesic dome uh i did not know much about her did not realize she was a british actress me neither actually too yeah 
And then I found out uh, the the really kind of the tragedy of her life. But it seems that she was uh, she was uh, her her first film role was in No Blade of Grass in 1970. Uh, she was in Nicholas and Alexander, uh, Nicholas and Alexandra, Henry the Eighth and His Six Wives in '72. And uh, she was even in uh, Vampire Circus in a small role. Yeah, which, of course, is a favorite of, you know... <laughs> freaks like us. Of, of, most hetero, of most heterosexual males for, of our age group. <laughs> this is true. Yeah, that's a favorite. <laughs> uh, I did not realize that I had seen her in uh, Lucio Fulci's excellent spaghetti western, Four of the Apocalypse. Uh, but uh, huh. now I'm, I'm planning to do a revisit to that particular film here in the near future, and I will be able to keep her in mind as someone who I now know more about. But, of course, she's mostly famous these days, unfortunately, because of the way her life ended in 1994. Uh, she was the, the fourth and final wife of Peter Sellers, and um, that was a, a pretty tempestuous relationship. All from everything that I know, uh, she was accused of being a gold digger, and uh, she definitely had her problems with uh, alcohol and drug abuse. And it is uh, it is very much thought, considering how young she was when she passed away, that uh, she may have died from the effects of alcoholism. So that's that's yeah, terrible. That's I terrible. Think to know. Her mother kind of said something like that it was a severe allergic reaction, which which is which is possible. Um, but either way, it's still a tragedy. It, you know? it really is. But um, and, and it's also kind of a tragedy that that sexism did in her career because because my understanding is, is that after Peter Sellers died and she got in a fight with some of the some of his children or some other people involved in the estate that she got really that painted as a gold digger yeah. and and basically had trouble getting work after that too as a result. So. Yeah, that was a pretty nasty situation. Um, yeah, I mean, she she even uh, the blacklisting aside, I don't I don't think she made any friends by uh, filing a lawsuit against the people who made the Trail of the Pink Panther in '82, claiming that the film tarnished her late husband's memory. I don't think that uh, that that helped her case in uh, both the industry or sure. in the public eye. So it's a it's a tragic ending, but she is quite good here, and I have to admit that. Um, that uh, Saul Bass worked very hard with her. Uh, she came recommended uh, by Nigel Davenport, actually, because he had worked with her before in No Blade of Grass, and so he recommended her for the job. And uh, the two of them, uh, Saul Bass and uh, Davenport, worked together to to make sure that because she's trying to play, she's playing an Amer an American in this to to kind of sand down that British accent to make sure that she yeah. And, and I will say that they 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 I don't think they were one hundred percent. Yeah. successful at that there's, I, I don't there's a few times where it's like yeah you can hear a little bit of the accent coming through yeah so. yeah and which <clears throat> i have to admit before i found out where the film was shot i thought that what i was hearing might might indicate that they may have shot it in australia but it turns out that is not yeah. true i thought maybe she was uh, australian uh, but it turns out actually the exteriors were shot in kenya doubling for uh -huh. uh, the desert southwest of the united states then the interiors were shot in pinewood uh, I did not expect that to be true. Yeah, that that was kind of surprising to me too. Um, but the yeah. I do think that they did an, ex, an ex, they they did an exceptional job of of fooling you into thinking that it is where they're claiming it is. Uh, and I really did love some of the, I would say little touches, but they're actually kind of large. The way they lay out that uh, that housing development that you know that didn't that didn't get finished because of the ants and the uh, the sign. <laughs> For the development, uh, the development that as you go in, uh, 
Paradise Valley. Um, right. Yeah. With yeah. it, you know, with it still standing but starting to fade and peel. Uh, that was that that that's a really nice touch that kind of sets you up and gives you an idea of uh, if if you if you think back on that as an image, that certainly gives you an idea of the direction the story is heading before you're aware of it from what's being told to you via the narrative. The uh, the the story. I guess we should uh, we should start out by saying that the movie begins. Well, I was going to say, yeah, maybe we should get to the plot. Yeah, Although yeah. honestly, this movie does is not like massively plot heavy. No, it's no, pretty it's not. simplistic in in the story of itself. The movie begins with uh, something that reoccurs throughout the film, which uh, for a lot of filmmakers is considered death, which is uh, a voiceover. We have Michael yeah, Murphy's character yeah. uh, giving us, thank God, plenty of information to, to, to make us understand where this film, you know, the setup of this film and then kind of drawing us a through line periodically throughout the story. And I think it's necessary and I think that it's it's handled in the way that it is. Uh, as if it's being presented as a, a scientist's notes where uh, right. he's now looking back and trying to make sense of all of the things that have happened and is kind of compi- compiling all this information into a format that can be easily digested by someone who's just coming to the information fresh. And yeah. starting with uh, what appears to be, uh, from the, the planet's point of view, some kind of... Um, some kind of what's described as a celestial occurrence, uh, some kind of mysterious cosmic event, uh, uh, ants of different species. Uh, there, there's like some kind of weird celestial alignment of planets and the sun. And this event seems to have been the spur, the thing that starts the process where uh, there are some things happening on Earth that people are starting to notice. And I like that the movie kind of hints at a couple of things. One, that what's we're, what we're witnessing here in the desert southwest of America may be happening elsewhere on the planet as well. As a matter of fact, probably is, but we never get any definitive answers on that because at a certain point in the narrative, we are cut off from the outside world. We don't have any communications with it, so we have no way to know. Right, right. But something. Yeah, I, I, I like, I like how they give you just enough information to kind of set it up and run with it, but they don't get any any detail. So, right. Because, for me, I'm one of my biggest pet peeves are are movies that overexplain, or what I call the 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 pull down chart and the pointer moment. And this movie is, <laughs> is gratefully free of pull down pull down chart and pointer scenes. Um. But it get, it, you really have all the information you need from that voiceover. That's another thing, too. You mentioned about the voiceover being the death. Voiceovers are something that I really, really do not like in films because it usually is a sign that the, the, the writing is being lazy. Um, or that something has been hacked out of a movie and they're trying or, to paper yeah, over it. Or something's it. been yeah. hacked out, right. And But i got to say that sometimes they work. And if for certain movies, they work really well. And this is one of those movies where, even though in general, you know, I, I'm I don't care for voiceover narratives. This, it, boy, I think this this movie is like the example of the exception of the rule. It's like yeah. I think yeah. totally the voiceovers are totally appropriate in this movie, and they keep them simple and to the point, and give you just enough information, and then let the visuals carry it after that. So yeah, so if you want an example of how that should be done, I think this is a great example. So. And, and it is one of those strange things. Often with a film, I'm, I mean, I've seen so many movies where after the fact, 
you find out that you know there were production problems and they they were forced to like edit a big chunk of the film out and that's why they started uh, adding you know voiceover or uh, that kind of the the second cousin of the voiceover which re- I really despise which is the uh, the uh, the ADR added you know the dialogue added after the fact when characters backs are turned or when they're driving in a car so that you can't actually see that the actors weren't giving yeah. this dialogue yeah. while it was being shot you know to explain certain things I I freaking despise that shit and it's one of those things where this works in this film I think simply because the takeaways from this movie, what you're going to remember, are the the visual elements of it. And the dialogue and the, the voiceover is there kind of to just present enough of the story, enough of the ideas so that the visuals carry the rest of it because the visuals are something in general that you haven't seen before. And so this is enough to get you there. It's not I'm not going to say that the the dialogue and the voiceover is kind of a thin line drawing you through all of these incredible visuals because it's more than that because there's more being imparted especially with the dialogue and what the actors are bringing to the table than, you know, something simplistic. Yeah. But the, uh, the, the takeaways from this movie are going to be kind of the bigger ideas of the end of it and the visual elements of it. And those are not things that are imparted in, um, in uh, dialogue or voiceover. Those are imager- images. Well, you know, and, and what I was saying earlier about the ant acting in this movie, um, if, if you just saw those images on screen without any context, you know, it's like, well, what are these ants doing here? What yeah, what, what yeah. does this mean? You know, and, and, and there's several different ways you might have been able to interpret those visuals. But with just the right amount of voiceover to set those scenes up, it's like, it, 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 I think that's why it works. Those ant scenes work as a narrative because it's like you, you've, they kind of pointed you in this direction and then let the visuals of the ants take, care, take you the rest of the way. Yeah. That, yeah, they are doing some weird stuff here and this isn't right. And, and they're piling up bodies in rows of ants. You know, it's that kind of thing, you know. That, yeah, that's very strange. Yes, there's so yeah, many of these yeah. weird and images. So I think that, that's one reason yeah. why, another reason why that plays so well is because it sets up a lot of the ant photography on the path that, of the story they're wanting to tell as opposed to you just looking at, what the hell are them ants doing? <laughs> <laughs> Look at them damn ants. What they yeah. doing yeah. over What shit. the hell are they doing? You know? <laughs> they doing some weird shit. What's this yeah. all about? <laughs> yeah. There but, ain't no ants in China. You know, whatever. <laughs> 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 ants wouldn't do, do that. What are they trying little to do? in joke. Are they trying to be? Yeah, that's a very, very in joke. I'm not even going to try to explain that one to people. But, um, <laughs> The, uh, the, the this kind of bizarre thing where we where we're told that all these different kinds of ants who usually don't work together at all or even uh, you know, often times will actually uh, wage war against each other are suddenly working together. There's it, you get it gets across the idea that there's been some whatever this event is that happened uh, in our solar system, however it affected the Earth. It's caused this kind of hive mind to develop, at least amongst the ants, right? Yeah. So what we've got here in the desert of Arizona is this strange, we'll just call them ant hills, but they're really these these kind of seven or eight strange towers. They're, yeah, which is, which is creepy as fuck. Let me oh just God, say what an image. Now. You want to talk about an image for the, for the ages for filmmakers to kind of study and look over and go, wow, okay, that one yeah, stays and, with that one stays with you. 
And the form they take, I found it kind of interesting because the two things that they kind of made me think of when you first see those images, because they're just these tall, straight, squarish columns. Yeah. I don't, I'm not sure if they're four sides or maybe five. But anyway, these tall columns. And then they have that opening that's almost like a slash, and it's tilted yeah. back from there. And so the two things that made me think of, one was a, a pipe organ. Oh. And the other thing it actually made me think think of when I when you see that image is the statues on Easter Island. Yes, because which, of that, which are weird and creepy the, in their yeah. own way. So that and, 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 and that's because don't... of that angle, the upper part, the right, upper part exactly. after the slit, yeah, they're kind of angled back yeah. like the the heads of the of the statues on Easter Island. So either way, it was a brilliantly simple design that evokes. A lot of like, ants ain't supposed to be doing that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it it evokes some kind of otherworldly intelligence, and and again, Saul Bass, I I have to imagine that he had a lot to do with that particular design because that's the kind of thing he really specialized in, and it and that design is just absolutely freaking brilliant. Yeah, it it really is that 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 design, and then later on the. The design of those uh, reflective little things that they build to try to uh, wage war yeah, against the humans. Kind of, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, the, that is another one of those designs where it's you know, but at that at that point in the narrative, we're well into the realization that these animals have developed a much higher intelligence than you would expect for any insect, and we're talking definitely about some kind of hive mind where there's something bigger going on here. But in the meantime, just speaking on the the images, well, in the story, of course, these two scientists are able to uh, convince the government to set them up in a, in a sealed ge geodesic dome. They're near these, uh, these seven towers. I think there are seven of them, although I kept thinking there might be more. And then they, uh, so they set up a lab there so they can study it and it's it's a it's a it's a very computerized lab with everything you know that you could have possibly wanted in the early 70s to try to figure out what's going on here and i just want to say that it's exactly right for the kind of story they're telling it's exactly how something like this would be set up and how it would be thought of how it would be designed what it would look like and the genius of it is that and this is not something i picked up on my first viewing because it's just something that sinks into you over time and it's only later when you're thinking consciously about the way the visuals of the film play against each other and play off of each other is that anytime we have images of where the ants live and what they're doing there are all these smooth rounded surfaces and in this lab it's all straight lines it's all it's all uh, angles and oh. uh, sharp edges and of course, that's what it would look like. That's what you know. That's what a rack of 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 uh, big computers, especially early '70s computers, look like. They are built in these you know they're big boxes with you know with yeah, sharp yeah. angles and being held in place by you know these these poles that have to go from the ceiling to the floor to hold everything in place. And so there is visually this difference between the living quarters of the humans and the living quarters of the ants and it's but it's not one that the film shoves into your face it's just something that over time and maybe on a second or third viewing you start to pick up on is that everything about this is different Every, these two groups that are let's be blunt studying each other they are in very different worlds 
the worlds they build for themselves are extraordinarily different. One is a very natural world, and the other is it is an incredibly artificial one. Right, and I think and, yeah, and I, engineered, it, yeah, right. And yeah, this yeah. and this is the thing is I'm I'm going to go ahead and leap ahead to an image that I want to draw your attention to. At the end of the film, when the remaining characters are in the anthill attempting to find the queen. Mm-hmm. There, that that is the only time that you're inside. You have any visual inside one of those ant hills, where there is a moment where, where there is any kind of jagged straight lines, and it is a doorway that seems to have been built to allow and to invite humans in and out of it. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so I uh, think that that, that, that is the. I, I didn't. I didn't make that connection watching it, but that's great. Yeah, well, it, I only made that connection like two nights ago as I'm watching the film and going, "Hey, wait a minute, <laughs> why, why do we have this? Why is there an obvious human, not shape, you know, not not sized, but shaped door, you know, or right. entrance way in this place where nothing else is like that?" And uh, that that means that you know that that means that you need to pay attention to it. That's something that stands out from everything around it. And as soon as I started to think about it, I'm like, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Of course, the the difference the 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 ants have been studying the humans as well. And so this kind of doorway, this kind of entrance way, maybe this will put these things at 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 ease. Maybe they will understand that this is something they need to go through. <laughs> you know, um, right. Uh, which I th- which I think is just an, an amazing thing, and it's just one of those things built into the way the stru- the story is structured and built that shows you the 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 really kind of intricate and deep thinking that went into the creation of this thing. But the uh, scientific team uh, they 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 start studying the ants. Nothing is happening, and uh, the the communications from the uh, I'm assu- I'm just going to assume the money people, either the yeah, the, yeah. the the the, the, the government or whatever. Are uh, uh, are becoming they're they're getting to the point where they're about to pull the plug because nothing is happening, nothing for them to watch, and so Nigel Davenport's character decides, okay, fine, we we've been talking about maybe doing something about this, we've been talking a little bit about it, so he just goes out and blows up the towers, yeah, and gets the yeah. ants get, gets the ants' attention like that, and lo and behold, they start communicating in a way that they can that Michael Murphy's character can then start to record, start trying to figure out things, and we see him intercepting their uh, their communications and trying to figure out and beginning to actually figure out what they're saying to one another in at first just really broad strokes and then as the story goes on and he has more and more data to work with much more intricate messages about what is being said he's able to interpret more and more of it as we go along this gets creepier and creepier and of course that's not the only thing that's going on the the one family, the one farm family that has held on here in this area, kind of trying to fight off the ants, uh, that does not go well. The uh, the uh, three adults, uh, all of them uh, older than average, uh, they, they they always kind of struck me as like, oh, if that's their daughter, then they definitely had her a little later in life than average. I, I think it. I think it's mentioned at one point that she's her granddaughter or Is something. It? Ah, I, I okay, believe. Okay. I'm, I'm not a hundred percent for sure. You could. I'm, you're but that's my memory. Right. And and but yeah, it, it it you know to well to draw a parallel, it's it's kind of like um, um, Dorothy and Annie M and. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, it's kind of that's what it kind of makes me think of is that it's like Dorothy down on the farm in Kansas with her Annie M and Uncle whatever. I can't remember now from the Wizard oh, I can't of Oz either. Oh, but, did you, uh, by, by the way, do you know who? Uh, and th- this is this is really really funny and really kind of weird. The actress who plays the the uh, the either mother or grandmother, the actress Helen Horton. Mm-hmm. Um, you know she was <laughs> she was the voice of Mother the Computer in Alien. Oh, how cool. I know. It's one of those things where as soon as I found that out, I just sat there holding my head and going, I've never even thought about who might have provided the voice for the computer in Alien. Oh, my God. Oh, that's that's cool. Very Um, strange, in my opinion. But, yeah, so so the ants, to get back to the plot a little bit, as you were saying about the family, they're hanging on. And and I gotta say that the, the the couple of shots you get early on where the ana- where the ants have killed various farm animals and yeah. they have those perfectly round holes that they've kind of drilled into their carcasses yeah. at various points and then of course it it reoccurs later in the film too, but but those the the, per- the like three round perfectly round holes are creepy as hell. You know, and that's, what's weird? It's, it's a very subtle movie. thing, but it's very right. like. Ugh, ugh. What's weird is the yeah. movie. The movie structures these the the these images in a way mm-hmm. that you the first time you see these 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 oddly drilled holes, you are never going to take note of them because the first time it is allowed as about eleven minutes in, and there are three holes drilled into the wood of one of those destroyed houses at Paradise Valley. Wow. Okay. But the thing is, on first viewing, you're not going to take note of that. It's right. only, but then two minutes later, about thirteen minutes into the film, is when we see those three holes drilled into the neck of that sheep, the dead sheep. Right. Yeah. And so the they're once again they're they're laying all of these visual images in front of you, and some of them you're not even going to be able to pick up on on a first viewing. It's only later when you realize, oh, wait a minute. So there were clues being laid there that no one could spot until later on, but they were still there. Right. Well, the. Uh so if I if I'll pick up the plot line here, the ants begin to attack both the scientific base and also the remaining farm at the farm too. Yeah, and the farmers flee to the scientific base, hoping that they'll be able to get some shelter there. But unfortunately, they show up just as Nigel Davenport hits the poison button. <laughs> yeah, and that is it incredibly visual and also incredibly creepy scene where all that yellow poison comes spraying out. Yeah. And, and, and of course they arrive right in the middle of it and then it cuts to the next morning where they're coming outside in the suits and they find these bodies there and they find out, well, basically we murdered these people. <laughs> well, that's just it. I'm not sure that we can lay all of the deaths of those people at their well, feet. Yeah. I mean, if, that, if they had that truck crash, by the that poison, truck they crash got killed pretty, by the yeah. ants anyway. So, well, 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 not only that, the, the, that truck crash as, uh, as they discover that there are ants in the, the truck that they're, that they're escaping from the farm in and that, that crash and rollover, it's like, I don't know, man, that looked like that probably snapped somebody's neck, but yeah. but um yeah so anyway incredibly effective scene there and that and but that's the point where they find um lynn frederick's character she kind of emerges from the cellar doors again kind of call out to wizard of oz i i can't help but wonder if that might be deliberate um interesting i hadn't hadn't thought of that but yeah yeah well i hadn't either till just now since i'd already mentioned that earlier and uh and yeah so so yeah just 
great scene, great visuals there of the the two farmers, you know, the man and wife's bodies huddled on the ground where they've just curled up in those fetal positions. Yeah, I was going to mention them in, in fetal positions, which made me think of uh, which made me think of, you know, embryos or or uh, the, the way we would uh, have like a cow fetus in a jar to study in a scientific laboratory or something. Right. Yeah, true. So then they get inside and and uh, and I guess the next thing is they they build the mirrors, isn't it? Is that yeah, this is the yeah. this is the point at which the it, it becomes evident that the ants are fighting back. This is not just some generalized attack or some movement of the ants from one place to another. This has an intelligence behind it. And of course, the the question for the two scientists is, well, how much of an intelligence is there behind this? Are we looking at something that is pointed directly at us or is this just some kind of antagonism? that is generalized and after they start whittling that possibility down also in my mind getting to the point where damn does it matter the outcome is the same for us i mean they're trying to kill us um right the uh, teams of ants uh start to penetrate uh the 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 dome uh the computers at the lab they start shorting them out uh communications to the outside world get cut off pretty quickly um then they uh, they build those uh, those absolutely fascinating little uh, what would you even call them the, with the reflective surfaces on them I, I kept trying to to determine what uh, what word to use to describe them these these kinds of ant hills with uh, that they uh, managed to put a reflective surface on to kind of use the sun the same way that a child would use a freaking magnifying glass to burn ants to death. burn an ant up yeah yeah it's just just ant mirrors or whatever yeah, I, call them. yeah. it's fa- absolutely fascinating I will say that uh, for a film with a lot of amazing images um uh this the the presentation of those uh those reflective towers the the miniatures that they use in some of the shots do fall down a little bit visually but i don't think it's enough to really kind of dot the film anything but it is one thing that is noticeable especially in these days where you can see a really nice sharp image of the of the of what we're what we're being presented with but the um the 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 ongoing well well let's point out that the the point in the film where those those perfectly circular drilled holes that the ants are creating in things can no mm-hmm. longer be ignored is when they do find the the farmer's family's bodies uh, outside and um, they pry open because there's a one the farmer has a, a clenched fist and so Davenport's character pries open his hand to see if see if he was clutching something or holding something that for some reason and in the palm of his hand are those three perfect circles that an ant crawls out of yeah and then several ants crawl out of and it was like they took refuge inside human bodies to escape the poison exactly which, which tells you just how intelligent intelligent they are that it, yeah and, and 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 how the this particular poison may have been effective but there are ways around it <laughs> right well and and then and then immediately the ants they they actually they, there's that sequence where the ants are bringing a piece of the poison back to the hive as if to study it and and each one you know dies along the way but it's like a relay where the next one mm-hmm. takes it from them and goes as far as they can before the poison kills them and and eventually they get it to the queen who eats it, digests it, and immediately starts squeezing out yellow eggs. 
uh, which matches the color of the poison. So obviously it's like she was able to adapt that fast that it's like, okay, all I need is, is a sample of the stuff and I can create a whole nother generation that's immune to it. Right. And what I love is, is that there's the implications no way of that are really terrifying. <laughs> well, yeah, but, but just from a, the implications as, as far as that in the story are amazing. But at the same time, it is also one of those things where all of this is told outside of the, the view or the knowledge of the human characters. And it is all told visually. Right. And Another just, brilliant thing yeah, about this film. Yeah. You just perfectly described it verbally, but the film shows you this so effectively that it is impossible to miss. Right. And that, you know, getting back to the whole narration thing, if, if the narration was bad narration, as opposed to this being an example of good narration, we would have been hearing like, well, then they apparently passed the poison back and forth. And, yeah. You know, which, but the, the great thing about that is Saul Bass understood that images can tell the story. We do not need an explanation. We do not no. need dialogue to, to tell you what's going on here. If you're sitting there and you're paying attention to the images, you're going to understand everything that happens purely on visual information. And that's good, good cinema right there. That spring, we were all watching the events in space and wondering what the final effect would be. Astronomers argued over theory, while engineers got pretty excited about variables in magnetic fields. Mystics predicted earthquakes and the end of life as we knew it. When the effect came, it was almost unnoticed because it happened to such a small and insignificant form of life. One biologist, an Englishman, Ernest Hubbs, saw something, got nervous, and started investigating. While I was playing around with number theory at the university, Hubbs was already onto something. Ordinary ants of different species were doing things ants don't do. Meeting, communicating, apparently making decisions. By summer, the rest of the world had moved on to other things. But Hubs kept making notes while the threat grew. fragments of what he knew got out he kept most of it to himself so when I got into it I didn't know a damn thing talk about the ending because there's always been a little bit of controversy about it uh to a large degree because well because of the ending as it is i mean um we now have the option thank goodness to see the ending as originally envisioned by saul bass 
which is a little longer, a little weirder, and you can definitely see why the people in charge of trying to make money off of this decided, oh, we, we can't send this thing out with this. Okay. Yeah. But, but of course, the irony of it is, is that at least in what's being said, doesn't change that much. I know. It's just done. It, it's basically the same ending, just done in a much less cool way. Yeah. With many fewer. Yeah. Yeah. With many fewer extraordinarily interesting science fictional images. Right. Right. And I, I have to say that. Um, I like both endings. Uh, we should uh, we should specify that um, the ending is very much inspired by the ending of two thousand one, as we've already talked about. But the that slow descent into madness as one of the characters dies and the other uh, just finally goes oh to hell with it and decides to try to uh, go to where they think the queen of the of the uh, the hive is and to try to kill her is. Uh, it, it, it's a it's desperation and madness. It's the same kind of desperation and madness that you see uh, near the end of two thousand one, where um, it's you know in that in that film it's it's presented as kind of man against machine or, well, depending on how you want to read two thousand one, uh, uh, ev- ev- uh, evolution against uh, intelligence or in uh, a, a kind of battle of wills between uh, man and his own creation there's a lot to be said about 2001 and and there have been plenty of books and essays written thereof but this movie does have two different endings you can see the shorter one that was what was released for for uh, theaters in 1974 or you can watch the extended one now even if you just have to find it in a low-res version on uh, youtube yeah, there's several there's several versions of on YouTube and and a, and a couple of them are in pretty decent shape. So yeah, and it, that's it, where it, I actually watched the alternate ending. Um, and Randy, yeah, I, I think, Randy, I think you're like, right. It, they get to the it's same almost kind of like. Of course, what happens is Nigel Davenport's character is killed by the ants. Basically, they they right. get his revenge on him, and at that point, you know, Michael Murphy's character says, "Okay, that's it. I'm." I'm all in now on just going to kill these guys. And, and it's very much a, it's very much a, a human ending. Like, okay, I'm taking the final battle in there and I may not win, but I'm going to, you know, die trying to defeat these things. But when he gets there, it's like that realization happened. Well, first of all, there's a spectacular image of he gets into the hive and then there's a spectacular image of suddenly, um, uh, you know, Lynn Frederick's character who he thought, had probably died because she had run off to the ant hill er- earlier trying to sacrifice with the idea of I'm going to sacrifice myself to save them, which is, of course is another very human action to do. Yes. So yes. now he's trying a human action. I'm going to go in there and, and either beat them or die trying, you know, you know, man's got to do what a man's got to do kind of idea. And then he gets there and he sees her character rise up out of the thing. And it's like, that's when the realization comes to him that, that, um, no, uh, human solutions are not going to work here. This is, I'm not, I'm not just fighting ants. I'm going up against the whole of evolution here. You know, humanity is ready to move to another step. And we may not like that step. And it may mean the end of what we think of as humanity, as far as, you know, free will and the idea that we're individuals and becoming that we're about to evolve into some kind of creatures that are more like the ants 
more of a hive mind, but yeah. that's how it is. There's there's no way you can stop this. This is like, you know, this is like the dinosaurs trying to stop the 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 comet from hitting the earth or the you know, the asteroid from hitting the earth. It's yep. just like it, it's it's there. It's done, and you had no say in it at all. <laughs> <laughs> and and the idea that the film posits, uh, especially in the longer version, that right. it is the ants who not by you know growing to gargantuan proportions and being eight feet long like in in them or something like that but just by being exactly what they are but by harnessing the hive mind idea to be more intelligent than the other species on the planet the this this longer ending posits that they will continue to do what we saw them doing in this film, which is not just learning, but also experimenting, cre- you know, and creating their own evolution, moving their own species forward in uh, what can, I mean, what we would use as a kind of scientific way, you know, the, the uh, generation after generation of sacrificial uh, uh, ants, moving something forward so that the uh, the changes can be made to help immunize the the future generations against the thing that was killing previous generations this is what we see play out in a very odd series of images that posits them as reducing humans to what we have you know what we've used animals for not just insects but all animals right. where it's pinning them up in little cubicles to study and you know that, that incredible image of of humans of all types laid out in these rows like they've been pinned to a board like butterflies or something um just you know as if they're there for study to be plucked off of that board and to be examined for whatever nefarious or really just kind of curious fashion might be in the minds of these insects it's those images that I really, uh, I really cherish from the longer version of the film, the original version as Saul Bass put it together. Yeah, I, you know, I don't, I don't feel like the 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 studio forced in the much shorter ending is is, is a disaster. No, and because you still get the idea that that there's a big change coming, they're not clear about what that is, but basically. Humanity, as we know it, is kind of ending, and we're starting a new age here. Right. Um, and but it's with that same. It's, and it's not as clear that basically we're looking at humanity becoming, you know, uh, a, a hive mind. You know, the idea of the individual is 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 done. You know, in the same way that there was a point in our past when Neanderthals were done. You know, or right. or whatever. You know, or, the, or as I said earlier, the dinosaurs were done. You know, it's like we're ready to move to that next age now. And there's no amount of human will or individuality that is going to um, be able to print this. And in fact, human individuality, everything that we value and we think of as being human beings, individuality is actually a hindrance to our survival at this point, you know, as we move into this new age. And the, the um, final the final image of both so versions it, it, of the film is the uh, is of the two remaining humans, and for all we know, possibly two of the very few, if not the only humans left, at least on if not on Earth, definitely in this area, holding hands and looking toward 
the rising sun, of course, the rising sun of being the, the, the standard symbolic idea of, uh, of, of a change, of a moving forward, of a starting of a new era. And right. I think that, once again, that idea is planted in our heads visually, and both endings get to that same image uh, with right. the, the final credits playing out over the sun as it, as it, you know, the red sun as it rises over the 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 desert it, it's just that i i really do wish that um I, I i don't think all of the imagery in the longer version works as well as some of the other pieces do but it is still right. as a whole still just completely fascinating i think the my main oh yeah yeah it's, that, it's it's a beautiful piece of art even if parts of it you know aren't failed uh, or don't quite work as well as others maybe that's the way i should say um and it's a shame that it, it it didn't get put out there with that. Not that that would have answered some of the criticisms or some of the oh, questions no, that people no, still have today. Like, what the hell happened there? This don't make no dang sense. You know, what did they, what did they just not have an ending? It's like, yeah, they have an ending. They're just not. Uh, they're not right. giving you the ending that you want. I mean, it's funny when I was looking online. When you read what some of the contemporary reviews were, um, there was there was one in particular where let me see, let me. Let me find it here. I had it in front of me just a second ago. Oh yeah, yeah. Someone, someone said. Um, uh, writer in Variety wrote that uh, this film didn't get the bugs worked out before released. And another, uh, uh, another review from Time Out London said, uh, for all its. No, no, excuse me. This was in the New York Times. Uh, for all its good scientific and human intentions, phase four cries for phase five for fuller explanations. And it's like, oh, shut up. If you've been paying attention at the movie, you'd have all the explanation you need here. Uh, and, and that's one thing I really love about it is because, again, it doesn't get in to say that, oh, from this point forward, humanity is going to be like the ants and we're going to be becoming a hive mind and, you know, blah, 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 blah. You know, it's just that it, it plants the seed of that idea and, and lets you let your imagination run with it. And there is that sense of like, well, that's that's it for humanity as we know it. You know, a form of our, our genetic material is going to continue and human society will continue in a completely radical different form. But everything we've known up from this point is done. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. you know what I just realized? We completely skipped over one of the elements that this film introduces that um, it's it's minor in the way in which the film plays out. But it is still an absolutely fascinating thing. This was the first film to depict uh, crop circles. Um, yeah, yeah, that's that that's true. I, I was reading that online, and and there's some idea that perhaps people who people were in, because most as we found out, most the, most of these crop circles have pretty much been proven to be hoaxes. Yes, exactly. That were perpetrated by people, and so there's some theory that maybe this was the inspiration. However, humans are kind of clever. We can come up with crazy bullshit on our own. So well, what I thought, what I thought would be funny, film, but at the same time, you know, <laughs> well, somebody well, may have just thought of the idea themselves too. <laughs> well, the the uh, the thing that I thought was amusing was there was all there's always been that uh, that amusing little thing uh, that people say about uh, you know the there were only a few hundred copies of the first Velvet Underground record that were bought at the time it came out, but every single person that bought a copy of that album formed a band. 
Yeah, uh, yeah. Exactly. And there's a part of me now that's like very few people saw Phase Four when it first came out, but every single one of them that did went out to play crop circle pranks. Yeah, made <laughs> so, crop circle. <laughs> that's that's pretty fun. Yeah, I like that idea. Uh, that that's very appealing. So whether that's actually what happened or not, we'll 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 choose to believe that's what happened. <laughs> It, honestly, it makes me very happy to think that. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. But, um, go ahead. But go ahead. you know, to, to talk about this film, it, it it got some positive reviews. It got some negative reviews. Yeah, yeah. And it, and it didn't make any money at all. No. Uh, but in looking at this film, it wasn't really a, a real high budgeted film compared to a lot of other films at the time. And I almost can't help but wonder if, if this had not been really, if this movie had been done basically as a low budget film and then released to the art house circle instead of to, you know, Paramount trying to make bank off of it somehow yeah. as a horror movie with, with the incredibly goofy poster that you cited. <laughs> yes. I can't help but if, if a lot of the reviews would have even been better. Cause if, cause a lot of sometimes, especially this is, is very much the case still is that sometimes mainstream reviewers, they, they go into the mo- reviews reflect what they expect. Yes. You know, sometimes. And, and I can't, have, if this was, Oh, well, this is a, a big bug horror movie. Well, uh, what the hell's going on here? This doesn't make any sense. I wanted a big bug horror movie. You know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like when uh, count Floyd showed the Bergman film on monster chiller horror theater, you know, <laughs> like who brought a Bergman film in here? You know, it's like, well, you know, Bergman films are great, but when you're when you're tuning in at eleven o'clock at night expecting to see a horror movie on monster movie on uh, monster chiller horror theater, you don't expect to see Bergman. Right? <laughs> now, now, now I can remember no, is Count Floyd no talking, how, trying to trying to talk the film up, is, is, uh, trying to talk sorry, the film up. Is all oh, this uh, and the but the uh, the existential uh, the dread that you yeah, feel in yeah. this kind of relationship. It's <laughs> ooh. There <it> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> the, uh, but I kind of, but I do wonder, you know, like you know, that's a, it's an interesting what if. if this movie had been kind of like picked up by, you know, I don't know Janus Films or somebody and distributed yeah. to art houses as some kind of weird, you know, science fiction art film. If it would have maybe even done better at the box office as an art film than it would have been as as a mainstream release, and probably would have gotten a lot better reviews from people because people would have been going in there thinking like, okay, this is going to be some kind of mind blowing cosmic experience. And that's what Saul Bass had actually kind of given them was that, you know, in the guise of a, of a, of a, you know, a monster ant movie. So. Well, I will say that there is one, uh, one aspect of the, this film that uh, I did not dig into mainly because I, I couldn't get my hands on a copy of it, but there was a novelization that came out at the time of the yes. movie came out uh, by yeah. Barry Maltzberg. I've not, I've not found a copy. I've not read it. I'd be curious too, because uh, of course it, you know, it's an adaptation of the screenplay. I'd be curious to see what uh, Maltzberg may have added or what was there on the page that, uh, you know, didn't necessarily end up in the finished script or in the finished film for that matter. You know, yeah, he, he, I know. Yeah. I haven't read that either. And it would be curious to see, does, does he kind of follow that same kind of brainy intellectual draw your own conclusions or does he like bring out the pull chart, pull down chart in the corner? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do, yeah. Do we get, do we get the 16 millimeter footage of, uh, of an anthill while a scientist explains the, the layout of the hive yeah. and how things are done? Yeah. But yeah. No. 
but yeah, it would be interesting to find that. And I guess that's about the only tie-in. There wasn't a soundtrack album released originally for this film. Yeah, my only, um, there was one, but it was much. And there was much certainly later not a Marvel now. Comics adaptation of it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Uh, but uh, the the thing is, I mean, when you're talking about you know killer ant movies, my my brain always goes to things like the. Uh, you know, things like Empire of the Ants, especially in the 70s. Empire of the Ants, where you once again got giant ants. Or if you're talking right. about regular size ants, I think about that uh, that actually pretty good little TV movie uh, called either Ants or uh, it, uh, it Happened at... Oh, what was the title of that movie? It Happened at... It Happened at Lakewood Manor, the, the TV movie. Oh, I'm not familiar with that one. I'll it's it's pretty it's pretty good little TV movie. It's actually not right. bad mm-hmm. at all. But it's you know that's regular sized ants uh, making. Right. And then of course going back to going back to the outer limits, you have the Zanti misfits, which are not strictly ants, but certainly ant like. Very ant like, which of course yeah. once again does point us toward what this really does, as you stated earlier, feel like. It does feel like an outer limits episode. Yeah, you you've got that cosmic wonder. You've got the bear, as they always referred to it, yeah. on the as the writers referred to it on the Outer Limits, which which was the creepy monster. In this case, it's just ants. And the even the monster. score, even the score, really fits in with what yeah. we would expect from the Outer Limits as well. That kind of electronic music that's used for as the score in this mm. rather fascinating, to be honest. That. This, you know, there were a number of movies that came uh, came in the decades after The Outer Limits that did feel as if everybody involved was aware that they were playing in that same field. And, right. Um, and, the, and, the, and there's a few movies that kind of predate The Outer Limits that are that way. I think um, I Married a Monster from Outer Space is definitely. Oh, very much so, yes. Is, is an Outer Limits film, yeah. The joys of this, as we've talked about before with 1970s science fiction film is that there you know was that there was that seismic event in 1977 that kind of squashed a lot of this kind of science fiction filmmaking for about two decades and um the joys of looking back at this and realizing that no i mean there's a you know there there are multiple reasons why films like this have a hard time getting made and one of them would be Anybody who paid any attention to how little much how little money this one made, it's like, well, you're not really gonna gamble, you know, however much money you spent on that film on another one with that kind of, you know, back, you know, that that kind of uh, intellectual rigor behind it. But who knows exactly what kind of film you're going to get on the far side? You're going to try to push yourself into a position of finding something that is more of a guaranteed, you know, return on investment. But yeah, the, yeah, absolutely. But, you know, the, um, the, the joys of this is that, as you can see from this movie, the reason these kinds of movies returned bit by bit over time, and now they are yet again another another part of the kind of the regular, um, uh, the regular output of film as you go along, the same way as it is cheap to make a decent uh, horror movie. All you really need is a good script and a director who really, really wants to make his bones. The same is true of this kind and of science and a bunch of taro syrup and food coloring too. <laughs> exactly, exactly, or yeah. a creep or a creepy house. <laughs> yes, yeah. but the the uh, the the same is true of this type of science fiction film. Written correctly, you can make this kind of a, of a creepy, scary kind of cosmic horror science fiction film without spending you know a hundred million dollars. Um, the, the the these are the kind of movies that at the time 
could get made because, well, they aren't that expensive, but right. they might eventually make their money back. This, you know, it wasn't seen as a success at the time. It has developed a cult following over the decades. It is now much more highly regarded than I think that Saul Bass would have ever thought that it would be, considering, uh, you know, how it really did not, it did not enhance his career in any way from what we can tell. Right, right. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that, that I, because I feel like, I mean, I'm going to, I'll fess up. I, I love this film, but I, I'll fess up. You know, it's not, it's not 100% perfect, but it's, a, no. it's an incredibly fascinating movie. And, and I feel kind of, I feel bad that I wish Saul Bass had made some more films because I really wonder what he could have pulled off. Because as far as the design and the visuals in this film, they are just so freaking good. Right, and and you have to wonder what he would have done next. It, it, well, and of course, uh, uh, another example of that of a one and done di- as a director is is Charles Lawton's Night of the Hunter, which of course is one of my absolute favorite films of all time. Brilliant film, <laughs> yeah, brilliant film. Yeah. And again, and, it was a movie that that pushed that envelope, you know, in a way that for films at that time that that people just did not understand it. It's like, this is the 1950s. What are you doing making a, a German expressionist type silent film almost, you know, but, but that, that's uh, also yeah. really a horror movie. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, but, 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 but what a brilliant film. And unfortunately he never directed another film after that because that one got so um, raked over the coals and, and didn't do that well at the box office. But of course now it's acknowledged as a, as just an all time classic. Now some, 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 reviewers liked it but but not 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 many <laughs> no no Cer- certainly yeah. not enough <laughs> yeah you know yeah. and that's a, and that's another good example of a film that gained its following uh via the cult route before it became acknowledged as the classic that people think of it as now uh and this is a movie that phase four i think is a movie that is you know a good 75 percent along that same path um, right. I think that now, I think that uh, the discovery of the, the original ending, allowing people to kind of compare and contrast and uh, therefore kind of starting the discussion of this film in a fresh way a few years ago, I think that has helped this movie accelerate down the road of becoming one of those movies that people will look back on and kind of put into the same category, although not in the same quality level of the films that influenced it. And I think that that is one of the things that will eventually turn Phase 4 into one of those beloved films from the period that, uh, you know, in decades' times, people looking back will really kind of be stunned that it didn't make any money. Because right. it, will, it will become more and more a part of what everybody thinks of as emblematic or stereotypical of early 70s American science fiction. And right. um, uh, it's like I say, I think it's about 75% on its way to that status as we speak, but right. um, it, it'll eventually get there. And uh, maybe one day someone will listen to this podcast and realize that uh, it didn't always have to seem that way. We're already on the pathway folks. We're just not there yet. Yeah. Well, you, you know, and one of the things that's so great about, about that period of movies, especially being the age I am, because I, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I, I was born in 1963. So, in the 1970s, I was between the ages of, of seven and um, 17, um, which in a way was kind of the perfect age to be encountering these films. Although the majority of them I actually encountered on television because that was back when you still had network 
you know, you had the CBS, ABC, NBC, etc. movies of the week or Sunday night movies or, or you know, right. whatever night it was on. They might have a different title for these. And and like I said, this was one one that caught me in 78 when I saw it on ABC. It caught me completely unaware because it was like, well, I've never even heard of this movie. And well, what the hell is this? You know, and and it was very cool to just be able to you know, tune in on regular mainstream TV and see a movie like phase four. And it, it was a little bit different. You know, I, I don't know if the network ever reran it. I didn't look into that. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but, 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 but um, that's where I discovered most of the movies that we've talked about on here. So green and, and rollerball, which of course now rollerball was one that got shown a lot. <laughs> it got yeah, rerun more yeah. than once because it was such, it, it was a hit both at the theaters and on television. But, but there, there was that magic time. It was kind of a magic time to, to discover these movies, even though I wasn't discovering them in theaters, I was discovering them on television. And um, then of course, then again, I'm, I'm five years younger than you and I was discovering them mostly in the eighties on videotape. So, right. Right. Yeah. Well, and that was part of that wave of, of where studios realized, Oh wait, all these movies that we've got sitting in the vaults that were dogs, we can make money off of them by throwing them out on videotape. Yep. So, uh, yeah. So there's there's a lot of that going on too. Yeah. Uh, yes. And now we're now we're in the phase where there are so many streaming services looking for content that they're stre- they're finally starting to stretch their way all the way back into uh, the '60s and the '50s, and it's just soaking everything up. And so more and more of these things are showing up on streaming services, and people are wondering, well. What the hell is that? And well, maybe well, taking a chance. Also, I think we're kind of in a golden age for uh, Blu-ray and uh, DVD releases. Oh, sure. Right now, yeah. In, yeah. in a way, I mean, you know, people think, you know, granted, it's a more specialized market than it was uh, before the streaming raised its head. But, but gosh darn, I'm, I've gotten some incredible, you know, repackaging of films just in the last couple of years that are coming out now, where there's a real collector's market. For this kind of stuff yep and especially for for the cult films or, or films that you know that have okay we're not going to sell a million copies of this but we are going to sell a few enough a few thousand to people that really care about it right right i mean i just i just today in the mail got a copy of what uh what is my second blu-ray of it the terror from beyond space um, and I bought this because this is the first time on Blu-ray that it is, well, first of all, it's a remaster, which, you know, yeah. gets me every time, but also this is a, an edition of it with multiple commentary tracks from multiple, you know, f- uh, film fanatics and, uh, film historians and with a few other extras as well. And it's like, yeah, man, I love that movie. I want to see this movie treated in that kind of way. I want to dig through these commentary tracks. I want to hear yeah. all this stuff. It's it's Ray Corrigan's chin is what you like so much. <laughs> it, it, it is a very manly alien chin. You've got to give him yeah, that. So. His chin that looks like that looks like the creature's tongue because it was sticking through the mask that was exactly covering his head <laughs> because it didn't fit properly. Yeah, because it didn't fit properly. Oh well, but, at any yeah. Rate. So anyway, Phase Four is is definitely. I, like I said, I saw when I saw this movie in '78, it it kind of like wow blew my mind. And I had not watched it again until just just this week. And it, it's been on my list forever, but it was always one that it was one of those movies that I really need to rewatch that. I really need to watch it. And I kept but then something else would come along and I'd push it back and push it back. 
And uh, but I really enjoyed going back to it again and was even more impressed now than I was when I was 15 years old. <laughs> oh, I think so. it's a film that but like a lot of these movies, you need to see more than once. Even if you like it the first time, there are things that get revealed that yeah. you don't pick up on. You can't pick up on on first viewing. Like I said, like the the early appearance of those holes drilled in the the, the wood of that uh, destroyed house. Those are not things you're going to notice on first viewing because you're you're not there's not been any indication that that's going to be important in any way. So the uh, the film grows not just because of the, the the little visual things that are there that you can't really think consciously about, but also the things that you can't think consciously about until you've already become aware of some of the things that will be important later on in the story and in how the story plays itself out. It's a it's a film that uh, re- uh, repetition brings uh, not just. Uh, uh, a kind of enjoyment of rehashing the same thing that you already know, but it 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 kind of flowers. It opens up and shows you things that you've not re- that that it's not revealed before, and that is a sign of a film. Like I said, that I think is seventy five percent on its way to becoming that kind of cult film that is considered in uh, decades in the future as one that is it's difficult for people to believe wasn't better considered at the time of its original release. Yeah, I, I agree completely. Um, I, I, I wanted to say, when it, at the first of the episode, when you mentioned that about how you'd seen the movie, but you weren't that impressed with it the first time you saw it, but it kept, like two weeks later, it kept bothering you. That's actually yeah. a saying that I've, I've, I've said for years, was that anytime I see a movie that I don't like or I consider so-so, and yet two weeks later, I'm still thinking about it. That tells me I really need to go back and watch it again. Yeah. Yeah. I need to figure out There's something really good about this film that didn't hit me right the first time I watched it. And it's interesting because once I kind of had that real, I, I first had that realization years ago, back when uh, David Lynch's Lost Highway came out. Oh, uh, yeah. Because that was a movie that after I saw it at the theater, it took me a couple of days to try to figure out if I liked it or not. And my conclusion yep. at first was that I didn't, you know, it was like, well, yeah, there's interesting stuff here, but, but you know, ultimately I don't think it works. And, uh, after I came to that conclusion, I couldn't stop thinking about it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it just, it just, it, even though I'd kind of like made a decision that I didn't think it worked entirely, it, it just kept bugging me. It was just stuck in my head. And finally, I went back and watched it a second time. And I was like, oh, shit, how did I miss this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, so so I think that, that's, that's interesting. I had that same reaction with an earlier Lynch film. I had that reaction with uh, Wild at Heart. Um, yeah, yeah. When I saw it in the theater, I, I kind of stumbled out of the theater, kind of shell-shocked and stunned and not knowing what the hell I thought about it, and yet could not get it out of my head. And then uh, when it came to video, I watched it again, and halfway through it, I realized, shit, I think I love this thing. Yeah. yeah and uh, yeah. but but I will say that by the time Lost Highway came around, I my my first viewing in the theater, I walked out of the theater feeling like I was walking on air, going, my God, that was an incredible cinematic experience. I'll <laughs> I'll never get to have this experience again because I've now already seen the damn thing, you know. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. So anyway, I, and that's a rule that I've followed over the years is, is that I, I, hell, I saw Videodrome on first release and, and did, didn't think it was 
entirely a success and now it's one of my all-time favorite films because it haunted me for years and i was like i need to go watch this damn thing again and of course the second (laughs) time i watched it it was like holy crap this is a masterpiece (laughs) so so yeah so trust your instinct your your subconscious knows better than your conscious mind about what's a good movie (laughs) yeah and 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 sometimes it will it will keep I think you described it perfectly. It'll keep haunting you until you can put that ghost to to bed, until you can figure out what it's trying to tell you. And, right. uh, it, it, it's, and that's some of the, that's, that's, uh, that's the beauty of the art form that can be cinema. It's just, it's, it's got that ability to affect you on a, in, in ways that other things just cannot. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. I, I want to give one mention here um, in doing my research on this, when we were getting ready to talk about phase four, I, I ran across a website and actually a series of articles that, are, that have been written by Keith Phipps, and it's on the website The Dissolve, and he has been doing a series called, um, let's see, what it, what is it called? The Laser Age, which is a review of um, where he's going through 1970s science fiction films, kind of like we are, and writing about them. And he, he goes a little bit further because, you know, we're kind of going from, well... We're starting in the 70s a little early, even though we haven't dipped back that far yet. But I, I really consider, when I say 70s science fiction, I, it's like, okay, it starts with 2001 and, and Planet of the Apes and runs up to Star Wars is kind of my attitude on what constitutes what I think of as 70s science fiction. He's yeah. kind of going a little further than that. He's actually going through the whole decade here up into the, some of the Star Wars and some of the immediate post-Star Wars stuff. But there's some really good writing on here. And he has a piece that specifically uh, addresses Phase 4 and, called Talk to the Animals, where he actually talks about uh, the film's Day of the Dolphin, uh, Phase 4, and also A Boy and His Dog, because it's all about human inter- humans interacting with animals in one way or another. And so I, I, I won't try to read the URL here over during the podcast, but... <laughs> But I've sent it to Rod, so I'm sure I'm sure he'll include it in the in the post. For yes, this I will. I will be including a link in the uh, the show notes when we put that. When I yeah, put this and up. I, I haven't I haven't read through all the stories on this site, but as soon as I discovered it, it's like, hey, this guy's stealing our thunder and doing it really well. So <laughs> I am going to read through all the articles on this site. So it's it's good stuff. I was glad that you found this. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I like the way he's and, I like the way he's grouping them too, and he's he's drawing a you know a line back to earlier films that you know when he's when in this piece where he's talking about the quote unquote talk to the animals, he's drawing a line back to uh, Attack of the Crab Monsters with that really weird kind of talk to the animal idea. So yeah, it's it's pretty cool. It's really amazing. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I, I and I have to say that the second piece I read after the talk to the animals piece, since it dealt with phase four, was the most recent one that's on the site right now, where he where he does a column on um, a laser blast, message from space, and star crash, which are <laughs> <laughs> which are three movies I absolutely adore for entirely different reasons than the, than I adore phase four. But yeah, so well, we, we, got, we, we both expressed our, our love on this podcast for Star Crash. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, and I'm a nut about Laser Blast. I, I, I really it's one of those. Well, as I like to say, uh, it, it's a movie I have a soft spot in my head for not my heart, but in my head <laughs> for because I really love that film, even though I know it's a total mess of a film. It's just that 
for some reason it it pushes my buttons and and uh so yeah so getting to read like i said getting to read anything by anybody that has something positive to say about laser blast i'm there <laughs> you know one day you're, you're going to have to attempt your your damnedest to get me to do an episode on that so that i can be forced to watch it again so yeah yeah that but that and the incredible melty man because those are like the two oh god yeah that <laughs> that, are, that film oh, the immediate Lord. star wars period that really and truly are are pretty bad movies but boy i love them you know, and I I have a hard time explaining why. I just I just do. <laughs> well, Randy, uh, I want to once again thank you. Uh, just thank you for coming and doing this. I know that we uh, we always think that we're going to do these more frequently than we end up doing them, but uh, thank you. you. You've once again explained in detail by your participation here exactly why I want to continue doing these shows with you. Thank you. For yeah, coming and on and and maybe maybe we'll surprise ourselves and and get another episode done in less than a year. <laughs> well. I I mean, we, we do need to talk. I mean, there's still Future World. There's Zardoz. There's, yep. uh, as you've brought up now, Laser Blast. There's, uh, there are a number well, of... Laser Blast is post-Star Wars, but yeah, we could talk yeah, about I mean, it. Yeah, <laughs> this we can This is talk true. about it. But uh, yeah. we, can, uh, we, we, we can definitely discuss where we will go next from here. What uh, Have you been up to anything interesting that the, uh, the, the gentle listeners would be interested in learning about? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, still doing my, I'm still doing two radio shows on WXNA, which is the, the, the community radio station here in Nashville that we started over seven years ago now, which is kind of mind-boggling. So I, I do uh, Randy's Record Shop every Monday morning at, at 7 a.m., uh, Central Time, and then I do, which is kind of my punk rock, rock and roll show, and then I do the Hip Billy Jamboree on 1 p.m. on Sundays, which is all traditional uh, country music and older country music. Uh, I just did my Halloween show last week on that, and I had a 20-minute set of Bigfoot song, country music Bigfoot <laughs> songs, which was a delight, and uh, yes. be able to put together. I could have done two hours of Bigfoot songs because that's one of the things I collect are songs about Bigfoot. And, and there see, were, and believe me, me, there were a ton of those in the 1970s. <laughs> see, that's that's the fact. The, the fact that you could go on for in excess of an hour just playing nothing but country Bigfoot songs. That yeah. is scarier to me than the concept of the Sasquatch <laughs> yeah. all on its own. I mean, for, for me, that's a that's that that's a reason that the human race should be allowed to continue. You know, it's like <laughs> or possibly be down. It's like okay, why why the hell should we even be allowed to continue as a species? And it's like oh yeah, my, the song's about Bigfoot. That's it. That's why. <laughs> that's, uh, why that's why we're still here. And uh, and Kangen Kodos, Kangen Kodos heard those songs and are not destroying us. So if if folks want to check out. Uh, WXNA, we're, we're a totally free form station, meaning every DJ programs their own stuff and every show is different. Uh, so yep. you can check us out at WXNAFM.org. That's our website. Our schedule's on there and you can stream us through that site. If you're, if you happen to be in Nashville, um, we, we broadcast at 101.5 FM. So. And um, I don't know. I'm working on a few other projects lately that I can't really get into right now. But the pay is good, so, <laughs> so that's a good thing. Well, once again, Randy, uh, thank you very much for coming on the show, and uh, we will uh, once again have to keep doing these. This is great. Yeah, I love it. Thanks, Rod.